Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. In tonight's episode, I'm going to be discussing one of the darkest and one of the most unusual crime sprees to ever have occurred in my city, Halifax, Nova Scotia. For a period of weeks in May of 2007, it appeared a serial killer may have been targeting our city's gay community. But in the end, it turned out to be something altogether different. To put it bluntly, the killer thought he was destroying vampires. So yeah, this story is as unusual as it is tragic. To help me talk through the story and to join me in the discussion that surrounds the many elements to this case, I've invited a good friend and fellow podcaster, Christy Lee from Canadian True Crime, to join me. So let's get to it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we're going to be discussing the story of Glenn Race. Christy, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the show again. You're you're like a returning guest. You've been on a few times at this point. I, think. I have, I have, and it, it's great to be asked to come on nighttime. Like it's it's my favorite show, and you are the the best of the podcast hosts. So I feel like I am talking to a celebrity every time I come on the show. It's it's an honor, a privilege. Yeah talking to a celebrity you've just complained to a celebrity for the last 30 minutes before we hit record but i whatever, told I'll, you I'll not to it. tell anyone about that <laughs> well <laughs> sorry your dirty secrets out there you're not as sweet as you try to play it out on your show well, why don't you for for people who uh, are listening to us now that don't know you or your show why don't you tell us about canadian true crime Yeah, so Canadian True Crime is um, a podcast that I started in my closet three and a half years ago, and basically I just wanted to tell stories of Canadian crimes. And uh, in case you haven't noticed, I do have an Australian accent. Sorry, you know that, but your listeners don't, may not. Um, I have an Australian accent. I'm originally from Australia, but I've been here in Canada for 11 years. And so for all intents and purposes, I consider myself a full Canadian. And um, um, I've really gotten into Canadian crimes and I like to tell the stories um, in a kind of immersive uh, single narrator format with background music and um, yeah, so it, it's kind of a case by case situation similar to you, but um, it's generally just me narrating as opposed to your episodes, which are more conversational. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And you covered a lot, like a lot of my listeners, I think, know my show for covering stories from the East Coast of Canada, which you've covered a lot of. You did the It's Harshberger yeah, Maybe Murder from Newfoundland last month. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Mark Harshberger case. I've done um, the Jane Hirschman, Billy Stafford case. And of mm. course, we did the Loretta Saunders episode. Um, yeah, we did that together. That was, yeah, that was, last, I think, about a year ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I forgot about that because you, I've had your, that episode that you did for for that case on my feed. So I think listeners will uh, 
maybe haven't checked out your show will at least have uh, have heard your Australian accent and I'm like that doesn't sound like Jordan and I, I love that <laughs> your introduction always includes like an explanation as to why uh, why you have an accent my, one of my favorite things about your show is reading um <laughs> people's like comments or reviews or whatever where they're questioning how dare you have an accent <laughs> well actually I only changed my intro um a couple of episodes ago before I just used to say this is Christy and you're listening to Canadian true crime and I think any newbies that found the podcast were like what the hell <laughs> and uh demanding that um whoever puts out the podcast needs to get a new host because this Australian is just not cutting it <laughs> so I guess I was I kind of edited my introduction to say I'm Christy an Australian living in Canada and um, this is my independent podcast type thing. And hopefully through doing that and being proactive with my communication, I can manage the expectations of any newbies coming in that think it's the official true crime podcast of Canada or something. <laughs> You're so mature. <laughs> That's such a mature way to handle it. Well, <laughs> let's let's get into the case we have here. Yes. I've invited you to talk about a case from my hometown of Halifax that – I don't believe you've heard of this case before I, I wrote to you. You've never heard of Glenn Race or the the series of crimes that he was charged with. And no. Some were convicted. He was convicted of. But th this all went down in, in May of 2007. So to, I'll tell you a bit about how um, I experienced this at the time because this, this happened in, in my city of Halifax. In fact, he – he lived very near me when this when this went down, although I didn't know that until years later. But in May of 2007 in Halifax, there was – two men went missing in a very short amount of time. They were like a week apart or two weeks apart and very quickly, the local police put out a statement warning gay men to be, to be careful and there was suspicion that – Somebody, you know, maybe maybe not a serial killer was targeting gay men. And the, and the reason for that is the first two victims of this crime were both gay men who were last seen in areas that um, – I, I don't even know what you would call it. But it's like – not like swinging but like men would go for um, consensual um, uh, – connections with other men do you know, you know what i'm trying to say i don't know the polite way to yeah, say yeah i that. don't even know what the, i'm thinking of um um michael what's his face <laughs> um uh, let's go outside what's his name that british oh, guy george michael yeah george michael yeah <laughs> exactly that sort of thing the one of them is um happened near citadel hill you that citadel hill for someone who isn't from halifax is it's like kind of a military base built into a hill in the center of our downtown. Uh, the military base isn't active anymore. Once upon a time, it it like watched the harbor and had cannons and all this stuff. But what what's there now is this long winding road that goes around the hill and leads to where tourists can go see the military base during the day. But anyway, at night, um, people will drive up there and like go cruising and you can kind of – you may pull over your car and maybe wait to meet up with someone else to, you know, have a um, sexual uh, interaction with. In fact, um, one of my first times after moving to Halifax, I was walking home from a bar with a few friends and we decided to stop and take a break to have a cigarette. And 
not being from Halifax or really knowing, we we decided to take that break on the side of the Citadel Hill next to a tree. So it's like three in the morning or something, and we're just sitting next to this tree, like talking and having a cigarette. And then I heard kind of like a rustle behind me. And when we looked, we realized that we decided to sit down right next to two people who were um, probably <laughs> wanted a bit of privacy. <laughs> um, but anyway, I don't shame anyone for getting enjoyment out of their life in any way that they decide to, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But Absolutely. In, yeah. But in this case, the police put out a warning saying, you know, the two people are missing. Both have connections with the the gay community in terms of like visiting these kind of I don't know even what you would call it, like cruising spots or, or something like that. So the word around Halifax was that there's some serial killer targeting men. People were really freaked out and slowly the bodies of the missing men were found murdered. It got even scarier and darker. Ultimately, a couple weeks later, an arrest was made at the Mexican border is where the story is going to take us. And it was a a young man from Halifax, a 26-year-old man named Glenn Race, was arrested at the Mexican border. And in his wake, there would be a whole series of crimes in the most bizarre story uh, that would come out of it. It turned out, as you'll hear, he wasn't targeting gay men. He thought he was killing vampires and demons. And it, <sighs> it gets really, really bizarre. But this story, it's fascinating because of just how bizarre it is but the fact that this was able to happen and the legal fallout that will come from this story as well is could be its own episode of the show so i think what we'll do tonight is we'll just talk through the timeline i've had a a chance to prep you a bit on on glenn race's story and you know what he was accused and convicted of but i figure we should just talk through it How's, how's that sound perfect through any of this, Christy, did you see pictures of Glenn Rice? Did, did you get a look at what, what he looks like or anything like that? Yeah, I did. And I watched um, an interview of his on YouTube mm-hmm. when he's in prison. And he seems like he's got a lot of insight into what happened. I feel a little bit sorry for him. Yeah, I, abso- I absolutely do. I have uh, an, an uncle who is uh, mentally unwell. So when I hear a story like the one we're going to get into with Glenn Rice... Or the story I covered with your help before on Rohini Bissazar. Mm. I just, like, I, the mental illness is a, a really terrifying thing. And, and I don't believe the law is able to properly manage it, as we'll hear in this story. But yeah. Glenn Race, like, when you see him now, like, in that video you're talking about, he's gained a bit of weight being in prison and being medicated and stuff. But yeah. at, the, at the time that this happened, he was a really, like, good-looking guy. He looked kind of like Johnny Depp He ha- is kind of the look he had. I- I've always thought of him as, like, a Johnny Depp-looking guy. But when when you look at his life, it was completely normal. He was born in, uh, in March of 81, so he's about the same age as I am. And from a similar family, he has a younger brother named Doug. He has uh, his mother and his dad who... It's just when you hear about them as a family, it's it's a very regular family. They lived outside of the city. They did a lot of camping, a lot of um, – Glenn and his brother did a lot of like kind of athletic stuff. But it seems like 
a really normal upbringing for people who live in Nova Scotia on the outside of Halifax. And in fact, I know people who either went to school with Glenn or played on sports teams and stuff with him. And they describe him as just a regular, down-to-earth, normal guy. But for whatever reason, well, I think we'll probably hear the reason, but around the year 2000, things really started to change for him. And his parents um, had noticed, I I guess you would say, a deterioration in, in his kind of his mental health going from just the the regular guy becoming slowly becoming more and more kind of offbeat and and uh, paranoid and i think in like it, you watch that youtube video that was filmed after he was in prison he mm. he seems he's very like kind of medicated and it yeah. was kind of the vibe i got is that what you got from At, it yes he was uh he was very even you know mm-hmm. there was no kind of up and down in his voice he was just kind of flat yeah and I think that must be – I'm guessing it's the result of probably pretty heavy medication that, that he'll be getting in prison. But yeah. what's what's said to have happened is around 2000, he was at um, Dalhousie University, which is a, a major university in Halifax. And he dropped out of school during his second term and moved back in with, with his parents uh, who lived outside of the city. But when he did, it wasn't like – I'm dropping out of school. I'm moving home. It's like he dropped out, moved into their basement with no – wouldn't have lights, wouldn't have telephones, TVs and was like almost like starving himself and was obsessed with the idea of cleansing his body. Like so like eating really healthy or, or really mild like a, you know bread and water sort of thing, which is – um I can only imagine his parents were like, what the heck is going on? Like it would, it must have been a, a startling change, which led to a series of visits with, you know, mental health hospitals and crisis centers. It, it, this seems like it's going to be one of those stories from the very beginning that is based on his parents struggling to figure out what's going on with him and and getting him help. And I'm, I'm sure you've come across a lot of stories like that because it seems to be a common thing. Absolutely, yeah, and um, uh, yeah, the one that I covered, the Brentwood Five, Matthew mm-hmm. DeGrude, who stabbed those um, five people in Calgary. Um, it seems like his didn't take such a long period of time to come on. It was kind of a little bit sudden. Whereas Glenn, here, it um, it it's going, it's getting worse over a period of time, and his parents are like aware every time and trying to get mm. him help. And I I really feel for them because it's it's clear like how desperate they were to get him help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was at, at this point. It very quickly after the first few um, visits to the hospital or whatnot, he would be diagnosed as schizophrenic. And I think I, I'm not an expert on schizophrenia, uh, but. Some people are okay with getting treatment and can live like a normal life and manage their 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 illness. Some people take a different route. And Glenn is, is said to be one of the people that didn't actually believe he was sick, didn't want to take his medicine. And it almost led to this um, almost like combative relationship between Glenn, the healthcare providers, and his parents, I'm sure, who were just trying to get him help. 
So all the while, while he's not being having his illness properly managed, he just gets worse and worse. And it's around this point that he begins to develop a belief in vampires and demons. So it, it sounds weird, but he truly believed that there were vampires and demons on Earth. And he began to take on the role of like, I am like sent by God or commanded by God to stop these demons and identify these demons. I think the cleansing that he was going through came into that. But there was even like there's a, if you read articles about about his story, you'll find a thousand bizarre little experiences that his parents have shared with Glenn like him um, during this period of time after the year 2000 when he dropped out of school at one point. I think he went in his bedroom at his parents' house and he painted everything in the bedroom white, like his bed, his walls, his floor, himself, head to toe, covered in in white. Um, I think he had – and I think he came out of the room – I've heard a few different accounts of this, but I think he came out of the room carrying a Bible, also painted completely white. So it's like we're we're talking about someone who really – went off the deep ends uh, for lack of a of a better way to say it lost he, um, his grip on reality yeah absolutely and it was i'm sure it was scary for the people around him but it was also dangerous for him he um he set himself on fire at one point in his parents backyard i think this was in and around 2005 or 2006 he set himself on fire and was put into the hospital with serious injuries, but since he was in the hospital, he was given his medicine and was said to have improved. And this is what really kind of sets up the story that's that's going to play out here is through this hospital visit, being properly treated, routinely given the right medicine, a schizophrenic can control their illness as Glenn did for a period of time leading up to 2006. He was manages, managing him his schizophrenia and what he decided to do was he wanted to move out of his parents' house and live on his own, which like in reading this story, it seems like I don't know how that was a good idea for anyone, but I could see why his parents would want to support him if that's what he decided to do. Yeah, it, it seems like really his it. parents were very, very supportive and – um, instead of telling him no all the time, they would just kind of go along with whatever his um, he was doing lately, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, like being – like seeing your son very sick, your child very sick, that would be horrifying. But then seeing them getting, be- getting better and getting medicine – like I could see how I you know. could kind of get swept up with like, all right, things are going to be okay. We're – you know, not to say it was like denial or something, but I could I could see this happening. But – Totally. Regard- yeah, but regardless, he in on in May of two thousand and seven, so about six or seven years after he began to show symptoms of schizophrenia, he got his own apartment in the north end of Halifax. I actually lived like three blocks away from him at that time. I and when this crime happened, I had no idea that um, that he lived that he lived that close to me, but. What we'll get through in the next segment, we'll talk through Glenn's first apartment and how that positioned him to 
um, really go downhill. We're in May of 2007 now. Glenn gets his own apartment in the north end of Halifax. The first day that he's living there is the is the day that the first turn, which coincidentally turned out to be a gay man, goes missing. Uh, court documents for that are associated with this case have a really clear timeline built up of of what Glenn did all throughout this um, this several week stint. So I'll, I'll kind of talk through some of what he did during his first day. So he moves into an apartment, the north end of Halifax. He does some very generic stuff, gets groceries, goes to the bank. He visits a library, and this may become important, but he takes out a couple books, one of which is a book about Mexico. And that's important because when we get further into this, Mexico ties into this case. Um, what's, uh, fr- from there. So he, he runs around his, his average day as this is happening. There's a man named Paul Knott. He's a, a 44 year old guy, uh, retired. He was with his daughter shopping. Um, I don't know where exactly they're shopping, but they were out on a daddy and daughter night, uh, or afternoon shopping as evening approaches. He drops her off at home or, or at work, I believe. And goes on about his his evening. Paul not, however, after dropping off his daughter, I don't believe he was he was ever seen again. We do know that Paul Knott and Glenn Race managed to cross paths not far from Glenn's apartment, which was at on Citadel Hill, that area that I told you about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the story of what plays out on Citadel Hill is um is pretty is pretty shocking. This comes from the the court documents. There was like a, an agreed statement of facts that eventually came out, where as much as possible that's known about this case is shared. So I won't get heavily into it, but what they believe happened is that Paul Knott was driving his car up to Citadel Hill, maybe cruising uh, for other men. Uh, at some somehow he met Glenn. Glenn got in his car with him. What is said to happen is Glenn ordered him to repent for his sins. Again, keep in mind that Glenn was obsessed with the idea of demons and vampires. Uh, Glenn is said to have ordered him to do that. Whether he did or didn't is probably irrelevant, but Glenn eventually uh, very quickly slashed his throat, stabbed him several times, and... That's how Paul Knott dies is probably Ugh. completely unexpecting anything like this to happen. Um, yeah, he just ab- he just met the worst possible person to run into, I think, is what happened. That must have been a horrific, horrific death for him to have to suffer through. Inside a car, too. It's just, it's just the idea if you play that out in your head, which I don't recommend doing. It's just, um, yeah, it's very frightening. And yeah. In Citadel Hill is a really dark place. It's not like there's streetlights up there, and yeah, it's um, it's it's not nice at at all. Uh, what happens from there is Glenn Race takes his car, and 
what what's important to follow in this is there's a question of whether Glenn Race was completely insane, not understanding what he was doing, or if he did understand and should suffer con- the severe consequences. What is interesting is he's very meticulous in covering his tracks, which is it, 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 I don't know what that says about how sick he was at the time, but he was very clever in what he did. What Glenn did at this point is he he took the car, drove um, about a half hour outside of the city and dropped um, the body off in a, a just a wooded area, just in the middle of nowhere where no one would, you know, very quickly find him. From there, he, after dropping off the body, he then drops off the car in a different area and when he drops off the car, it's a, it's another remote road kind of out by the Halifax airport, which is outside of the city. He carved into, I think it was in the hood of the car, he carved, waiting for my friend's tow truck, thanks. He had his bike stashed in the, uh, in the trunk of Paul Knott's car. He took his bicycle out, drove to a gas station, and from there called his dad to pick him up his so again, it's it seems like when you hear this, it it seems pretty planned and methodical, like um, to divert attention by putting in the, the you know I'm waiting for my friend's tow truck and stuff. I don't I don't know what uh, an insane person would do or someone who's you know not criminally responsible for a major crime. I don't know what they would do, but that just seems really deliberate and thought it out. It does, it mm-hmm. does, and I know um, the two cases that I've looked into, um, you know this. Matthew DeGrude case and and also Vincent Lee, those guys made no attempt to cover up what they had done. In fact, they they seemed to believe that what they were doing at the time was the right thing. So it's it's really weird that this guy was hearing these voices and felt like he had to do something, but also felt like he had to cover it up. That's that seems a little different to me. And I'm not saying that that it wasn't correct. Um, that he was still having a, a an episode, but yeah, it is a little different. Yeah, so he's out at, the, at in the middle of the night at a gas station near the airport outside of the city. He calls his dad, who lives probably about an hour and a half away from there, I would think, or maybe an hour away. So his dad comes and picks him up. I'm sure they had a strange talk about what was going on and why Glenn was out there and needed a ride home, but. His dad, I'm thinking, based on this fact alone, I'm thinking his dad suspected something was wrong. Instead of driving Glenn back to his apartment in the north end of Halifax, he drove Glenn to his parents' house, in, which is in Windsor, a community outside of Halifax, and took him there for not just overnight. He he brought Glenn back for, I think, a week or two. But from the very beginning, like the, the account Glenn's father shared of that car ride he he described um, Glenn getting in the back seat in as his dad was looking in the rearview mirror back in at the back seat at his son. He could see Glenn would take a deep breath and hold his breath for like you know really long periods of time, which is mm. strange. But I think it's something that he was said to do often is like hold his breath for really long periods of of time, but. I think even the next day, like I'm, I'm sure they they would have known that his illness was was coming back because they also, I believe, the next day they saw him 
in the backyard uh, arguing with someone that wasn't there. Like it was, it was almost like he was having like a physical altercation and yelling with someone who there was no one there. They just saw him outside doing that. So I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking they knew something was, was very, was very wrong, but whatever, Mm. yeah, whatever it was, it, it, it must've passed because it was actually a week later that, they drove Glenn back to Halifax. So he he ended up spending a week with them. During that week, all over the news would have been, there's a missing man in Halifax. I remember there being posters everywhere for Paul Knott, his name all over the news, his family members and daughter and people who knew him talking out like, my dad would never, you know, run away like this. Something's going on. But yeah, it was was really, when you live in a city the size of Halifax, whenever there's a missing persons case that, turns bad it just really sticks with you because i re- like i re- can remember several times that there were, you would see the posters up like you know have you seen this person and then you will see a news report of you know either a body found or in say like the case of loretta saunders which we covered a major mm. news story of you know the uh, a murder um yep. and i can remember after loretta was was found dead and people were were arrested and whatnot. I still remember not far from my house on a pole was like this old poster that people hung up when they were looking for her. Uh, and I remember seeing it one day and just seeing it, like realizing like how dark the whole situation, whole situation was. But with with Glenn Race, that's um, that's not the only the only time it would happen. Um, keep in mind, he was. May 1st is when he killed Paul Knott, went to his parents' house for a week. May 7th, his dad dropped him back off at his apartment at um, in Halifax. That night, it's all going to happen again. This time, it's a, a 45-year-old man, another gay man named Trevor Brewster, who was a, a server at this restaurant that I go to often with my mom called Steakenstein, which is like... Let's say if you wanted to go to the keg, but you only had like eight bucks, you can go to Steakenstein, <laughs> and that's uh, that's basically what it is. It's like decent steak for for cheap, <laughs> basically. Right? Yeah, it's a, it's a good place. <laughs> if you ever come to Halifax, um, we'll we'll, we'll go, guard that. That'll be my treat. <laughs> yeah, uh, but <laughs> Trevor uh, Trevor Brewster was a longtime server at the Steakenstein. When he was getting off his shift, he had plans to meet a friend later that that evening. Um, but he wouldn't show up. What was eventually what what eventually happened is his body was found under a dock on a um, near near a lake. It's called Frenchman's Lake. It's in Dartmouth, so it's, which is the neighboring city to Halifax. His body was found not long after, kind of tucked under this this wharf on the lake. This wharf also is an area used, or not the wharf, but this lake is also an area that that people frequent for cruising, kind of like Citadel Hill. So right. when he when he went missing and they found his body in this area, it's it's the same kind of location as Citadel Hill in terms of its late night uh, reputation. Mm-hmm. So obviously the police were you know were putting out warnings and and it was thought that. You know, it's somebody maybe targeting gay men. Um, and when he was found, he was also um, much like Paul Knott. He was without his car. Uh, Trevor Brewster's body was found. His car was missing. So I remember 
when this happened, um, photos of it, it was a, I think it was a white Honda Civic or a black Honda Civic. There was pictures everywhere. Like if you see this car, call police, here's the license plate. You know, it was, it was, uh, one of those, um, one of those situations where the, you know, an all points bulletin sort of thing in the press, uh, with, to keep a lookout for this specific car. But in a city, the size of Halifax, two men go missing under these similar circumstances. There's, it's totally reasonable to think someone was targeting, you know, men with that kind of lifestyle. 100%. And I I would like to know if if that was his goal or if those were random locations. It's very strange. The the only thing I can think of is it, it would be they would it would be vulnerable targets if people are meeting strangers like that and letting them in their cars and whatnot. But for Glenn, if 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 Glenn, like you wouldn't just happen upon these two places, and like if, if you're just um, walking around, it's not like you're going to walk there and someone's going to be like, "Hey, you want to like come hang out?" <laughs> you you would need to like he. There's a, a reason me, to go there. Yeah, like maybe he went there knowing this would be a spot that he could be alone with someone, but but I, I don't I don't know if that question will will ever get answered. And the story, to be honest, is already weird and dark but Mm. it's just gonna get completely wild because glenn after committing these two murders he decides to flee canada uh using initially uh trevor brewster's um trevor brewster's car what glenn eventually said uh his explanation for why he fled canada was uh an an archangel um like a spiritual being uh directed him to do this so he was in his mind was on like a mission from god that had these far-reaching uh supernatural kind of messages within it so i think if you believe in his defense that we'll eventually talk about um he thought he was on a mission from god to cleanse the earth of I don't think it had anything to do with like homosexuality. I think it was a delusion of like vampires and demons and, you know, this kind of illogical stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a, there's a few points where after, after the, the murder at the lake in Dartmouth, leaving with the, with, with Brewster's car, there's a few points where he would make contact with police mainly uh, later that evening, it's uh, um, after midnight, he squealed the tires of the car that he was driving. Police officers were behind him and saw it and took note of the license plate. But he drove off at such a speed that they decided not to pursue him. Like, I guess they'll make decisions about, you know, whether it's worth chasing someone or whatever. If, you know, they don't want to get people hurt. They eventually yeah. took down his the license plate of the car he was driving. I believe they flashed their lights but he uh, fl- sped off and they didn't uh, pursue him. Uh, Glenn had also said that he saw that as a sign that um, some like all-powerful being up above was like going to protect him during his time fleeing the country. Um, which, yeah, I just, in my mind, I try to think of how, what he must have been thinking. And if, and if he's completely... Um, delusional i i then question how he was able to be so methodical about a lot of the things uh a lot of the things he was doing like he he managed to pass through a toll station there's there's a toll booth 
kind of at the border between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, he not only went through the toll station and would have had to pay a toll, but he even asked for directions on how to get to the United States, which... Wow. Yeah, it, I, I don't know. It just... um, if, To do that, you just need to have kind of your feet on the ground, I think, without yeah. raising suspicion. And even to drive a car when you're like in the middle of an episode, I mean... Yeah, it, it does seem like it has an element of of planning and mm-hmm. like a, he had a plan, you mm-hmm. know? But, but at the same time, he could have thought that the police and the government were in on this kind of battle that he thought he was waging. So maybe a part of his delusion was he needed to plan and be prepared so he could get away with it. It just it doesn't seem like he's making it up as he goes. Why he planned it and you know what he was thinking is another question. But he um he managed to get um get across Canada. He got in Brewster's car, he got to I think to Quebec and he he ditched the car in a wooded area and crossed the US border on foot. He got he walked uh I think from Quebec into New York on foot. And we're um, over the period of maybe two or three days it took him to get from Nova Scotia to rural New York. Uh, he ran into a couple people there. A few witnesses recalled seeing like a kind of an odd looking guy, you know, walking down like their country road where they didn't see people. Um, I, I think a couple people had encountered him and asked like what he was doing or who he was and didn't really get straight answers. It was more so like I'm out for a walk. He, I believe, had like maps and compasses and all this stuff with him. So he was probably a bit of a sight. But what what he did find was um, the community's called Moores uh, in New York. It's right on the Canadian border, Canadian-American border. But he managed to find an old um, – it, it was still in use. It was, like, it was like a hunting cabin slash cottage, something kind of in the middle there, like a really rough kind of cabin that he um that he broke into again at this point in New York did you uh, uh, there's a lot of photos that go around of this cabin when you watched the the videos or read about this did you see anything specific to this cabin no no, no okay. i didn't it's, it's it's just like if you picture um if you went out to like cottage country outside of ontario somewhere and just found like a little cabin boarded up that people a family spent uh, you know like a couple weeks in in the summer or something maybe surrounded by trees and maybe a dirt road. It was that sort of thing. Um, He managed to break into it. Uh, I think there was an open window is how he got in there is what they said. But while he was in there, he found a gun, like a loaded rifle. Coincidentally, while he's in there, uh, a man, a 35-year-old man named Darcy Manor. He was a school bus driver, a father with, with two children. He was sent to the hunting cabin or the cottage or whatever you want to call it by the owner asking to uh, prepare it like for them to visit in the summer. Cause again, this is happening at the beginning of May. So he was like hired to prep the place and get it ready for them for when they, when they show up in the summer, he was, he showed up at the property driving a, an F two fifty truck, a 92 truck. So an older big truck. And he was outside fixing a water pump, um, having no idea that Glenn race, with a gun, was hiding in the cabin, watching him through a window. 
it's likely that Darcy Manor didn't hear or see anything um, before Glenn shot him at very close range, um, a shot out the window that went through his, uh, hit him from behind, punctured his lung, and killed him within a very, a very short amount of time. Uh, and I, I wonder if he even knew what had happened. That's so, so sad. And, and just completely senseless. Like when you think of, um, like to say it's senseless is, is such an understatement, but it's it's almost like getting hit by lightning. It's like you could, to to walk into a situation like he did yeah, with, with this guy from another country hiding out in this cabin in the middle of nowhere, you would, ha- and then the chance that there's a gun in there and the chance that you show up at the same time, like it's a one in a billion chance that you walk into a situation like this. Yeah, but, wrong um, place, wrong time, wrong everything. Yeah. Poor and, guy. And to the, like, 10th degree, like, it, yeah, I just, I can't imagine the, um, that kind of luck. But much like the prior cases um, in Halifax, uh, Glenn Race hid the body. He, um, I won't get into too much detail, but he, he dragged the body a good distance <laughs> And hit it, and not in the truck, using an ATV that was out there. So there must have been some motorcycle kind of things. Um, oh and much God. much how Glenn Race saw the police not stopping him in Halifax as a sign that someone was protecting him, he believed that Darcy Manor appearing at the cabin with a truck was like a prearranged thing from God. Like he saw this as as like almost like a gift to him like you know we're going to send someone there to bring you a truck you're a demon slayer is is how he saw it so now he's in the middle of nowhere about 10 days from the first murder he now has a close to 20 year old uh, yeah close to 20 year old truck um to continue on his journey so he's in uh, upstate New York, I think you would call it, like right on the Canadian-American border. He spends several days traveling close to 5,000 kilometers from New York, traveling towards the Mexican border um, with little more than a backpack with some odds and ends in it, like maps, encompasses, knives. Um, he drives through... You know, if you if you think of the map, New York to Mexico, you're driving right through the United States. What eventually will happen is the truck gets a flat tire in Texas. So he abandons the truck. He has the wherewithal to get a bus a good amount of the, the way to the border. When the bus drops him off, he approaches a cab driver and asks for the cab driver to drop him off at the Mexican border. So we're now at the Mexican border with Glenn Race, you know, getting out of a cab, having just killed three people, disheveled, long, black, curly hair, a backpack, probably a pretty heavy tan, having been, you know, spent like a close to two weeks kind of out in the mid-May sun, which is uh, enough to, uh, not yep. the kind of sun you'd want to drive through Texas in, I imagine. <laughs> no, so in, in the next, uh, we'll take a quick break. When we get back, we'll talk through 
what happens with uh, with Glenn Race at the border. Sorry to pull you away from the episode, but I want to take a moment to thank the subscribers of the Nighttime Premium feed, as it's their support that makes this show possible. If any of you listening enjoy Nighttime and aren't subscribed to the Premium feed, let me take a quick moment and explain what you're missing. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can subscribe to a different podcast feed in which the episodes are posted earlier than here in the free feed and are done without any advertising. But there's more benefits to the premium feed than simply better versions of the free content. The premium feed also includes post-show discussions and a variety of additional content that will take you even further into the rabbit holes. So if you got a couple dollars to pitch in towards the creation of Nighttime, the premium feed is for you. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. So with that said, again, a huge thanks to all subscribers to the premium feed and a thank you to everyone else listening for considering it. Now, let's get back to the episode. So I can, from watching TV, I can picture the way it works at a border. It's um, it's not the kind of thing, especially at the American-Mexican border, it's not the kind of thing you can just walk across the way. I, I understand that in this particular spot that he arrived at, there was like a lake or a river that divides Canada or America from Mexico with like a bridge that you pass. So it's a very tightly controlled border. You need to get through this bridge. Glenn race isn't about to walk across the bridge and check himself out uh, or check himself through uh, whatever that process would be. It looks like what he tries to do is sneak across, but he probably doesn't realize that this border is so intense that they have like motion tracking and all this stuff. Mm. So that's what eventually gets him. A border guard receives notice that there's motion at, at the border. And that guard goes over there in his vehicle to, to check it out. The border guard sees a disheveled guy, you know, the scruffy beard and long greasy hair and stuff kind of like milling about at the border. Uh, the border guard approaches him and says, you know, what are you doing over here? Let me see your ID. What's said to happen is Glenn Race puts down his backpack and opens it up as if he's going to grab his ID or his passport or whatever. But the border guard notices the the bear, the um, like this, the butt end of uh, of a of a rifle sticking out of the bag. Glenn probably didn't intend to let him see that to let him see that. When he sees the gun right, right away, the border guard is, you know, like, put your hands up, get on the ground. Glenn Race does not at all comply. Glenn dives at him trying to take uh, take the guard's gun. A shuffle ensues that results in Glenn getting beat up a bit. Uh, as you'll see in his arrest photos, his face is all busted up. But oh, he I did also... see that. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's it's you you did or you didn't? I did, yeah. Yeah, that's a it's a really freaky photo because he's Glenn's face. Uh, he has a few cuts, but his eyes are clenched really tight shut in the arrest photo. But 
Glenn manages to take a he bites the guy a few times. I think he bites his face and his hands a little bit before the officer or the guard or whatever the proper term is gets the gun on Glenn and says, you know, like I'm going to kill you if you don't comply. Uh Glenn does backup arrives. He's taken into custody, but what they find in his bag is enough that they they know there's problems. He has um for one the gun that I mentioned loaded he has makeup that's made to like camouflage her face, like like green and black, kind of like army makeup. He has Mexican money. He has the driver's license of Trevor Brewster, a credit card for Darcy Manor. So he has like all this stuff right away that's connecting him to these prior murders that, you know, they're they're looking for people for. And not only that, he completely shuts down when he's arrested. He won't open his eyes. He won't say – he won't answer any of their questions. Apparently what he said was over and over again, he kept repeating the phrase walking in circles, whatever oh. that means. He apparently from the time they put him in the car to even after he was brought to wherever they would lock him up, the jail or whatnot, he was repeating that phrase over and over again with his eyes shut. When they brought him in his cell and they go back to check on him, much like we heard described in, in his parents' backyard after the first murder, he was in alone in a prison cell in like a violent fight with somebody that wasn't there, like yelling, punching, throwing himself around. So I think right away, I'm sure they know like, you know, something really Something's wild right. is, is happening. So knowing what, what you know about the story at this point, Christy, does this seem like like if this was going to court, do you like? Do you think NCR is going to be the defense, meaning not criminally responsible for people who don't know? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, it would be because, and they—it's so weird because they have evidence on both sides. You know, they have mm. his parents and his medical records to talk about the the lead up to the crimes that he committed. But then on the other side, there's all that planning. And yeah, you're right. The planning could have been part of the schizophrenic episode that he was mm. in. Um, but he certainly did seem to have a lot more wherewithal than other not criminally responsible yeah. offenders that I have heard about. Yeah, me as well. Like when when I did the story about Rohini Bessasar in Toronto yeah. who, who committed the stabbing, it was like her story. It's so absurd and bizarre what she did and how it all went down that the only explanation is she was like having a – bizarre episode in his case it's almost it's almost like he's handling it like uh like he's in the military or something it's all like planned and deliberate and cautious but the the story so and then the other complicating factor in this is there's now two murders in canada and one in the united states both countries have completely different ways of of handling this but He's in custody in the U.S. because that's where he's arrested. So before he'll ever face charges in Canada, a very bizarre trial happens in New York that could be its own episode of this podcast because it starts off with them going for the defense, the American equivalent of of NCR. But there was this really weird stuff that went on from the very beginning of the trial there was new uh, information was released um, by the prosecution. And that information was 
as soon as the trial started, that information came out and it was um, – I think it was like 70 hours of phone calls between Glenn from prison and his parents. And the prosecution were making a case for – he wasn't insane at the time because these calls from his parents show that – he, the things he said in it made it sound like he knew what he was doing and he was more um, in better mental shape than, you know, than what they what the defense was letting letting um, letting the court and believe mm. what eventually would happen. I won't like we'll spare all the the back and forth. But eventually what would happen is Glenn Race's defense team would decide to change their strategy from him being not criminally responsible due to like a mental defect to he didn't do it. And they try to Ugh. they try to make a case for there's no evidence to convict him of Darcy Manor's murder. But there but he had the gun, he had connections to the vehicle, i think he had his credit card. Yeah. He was found guilty of, of murder in the United States and given a life sentence. A life without the possibility of parole sentence for Glenn Race, convicted of murdering a Moore's New York man, still facing charges for killing two men in Nova Scotia. That's what we wanted. It's what he deserved. After sitting through the trial and listening to him, he is not remorseful. He doesn't care. It's just, it was what we, nothing we could have asked for anything better. It was what I expected. Um, this case certainly called out for for life without parole. The district attorney says had it been allowed in New York, he would have sought the death penalty for the 26-year-old of Halifax. During a three-week trial in September, Race did not testify. And while questions were raised over his mental capacity, he had been diagnosed as schizophrenic in Canada, a not guilty by reason of mental defect defense wasn't used. At the sentencing, Glenn Race addressed the court, telling the judge and a crowd of about 70, with understanding I'm an international and celestial citizen with human rights on earth transcended to the cosmic community, I can truly say without doubt, I am innocent. After which a few people in the courtroom laughed. He will remain incarcerated in New York State for the rest or remainder of his life. Or in Canada, the DA says under a treaty, Race could petition to serve his time north of the border. There's still a huge debate about whether or not he should get a retrial and his family, Glenn Race's family, and some the lawyers that will eventually represent him in Canada because there's going to be more trials coming up. They're um, still trying to argue um, that he wasn't given a fair shot at that trial in New York, that his lawyer erred in multiple ways. That lawyer has since, that, that represented Glenn in New York, has since left the profession um, and I think left on bad terms. I think there was another case that was botched that eventually led to him leaving. And I think he now runs like a golf course or something to give you Wow, a, that's quite a career pivot. Yeah, absolutely. But it's... um. It's it's real. I just can't imagine that happening, where a a defense team changes their strategy all based on the fact that um, you know new evidence came, and that isn't enough to. I don't know. It, it just seemed when you hear the story of, like I read through the court documents related to that case in New York, and it's very complicated because there's a lot of like kind of the sidebar arguments about 
legal statutes and if this information should be allowed or not. But eventually what would happen is Glenn's lawyers wanted more time to review the phone calls and to get new professionals to review the phone calls and make a decision about whether or not he was sick at the time that he made the phone calls. But the judge didn't want to add any delays to the case and felt like um, like Glenn's lawyer should have been able to get it done faster rather than, I guess, figure it out as they went. They just changed their strategy to a strategy of, you know, he's not guilty. He, he wasn't there and he didn't do it. And mm. that didn't work. Um, in Nova Scotia is a, when he, he he's given life sentence in the U.S., but he is still has a trial in Nova Scotia for the two murders, which goes exactly how you would have expected is they have psychologists take the stand. They have his medical records from, you know, from 2000, 2000 and on when he first became ill. When that's shown, both the defense and the prosecution agreed that um, – his illness came into play. And I guess what, what I didn't realize is when, when this happens in like an NCR case like that, they still have a trial, but the trial more so isn't about like proving guilt or innocence or anything. It's more just doing the interviews and having people on the stand and putting all the facts there for the public record. And then the judge will make a decision on the fact on the facts that are presented and the expectation is that the judge will rule that they were not criminally responsible. That's yeah. what happened in Glenn's case. Uh, he was found not criminally responsible for in Canada for the two murders that he, that he committed here. But almost as soon as that verdict was issued, he got on a plane or bus or whatever and was shipped back to the United States to serve the rest of his time at a prison there. So weird. Was he sentenced in Canada? Uh, no, because it's well, with not criminally responsible, he would have been sentenced more so to um, like psychiatric care and you know that that sort of that aspect of things. But they yeah. I, they didn't have a chance to do any of that because he would then need to go to back to to New York to serve his sentence in uh, in the U.S. And I believe there's. There's been a lot of like legal wrangling that's happened since then, trying to get him back to Canada, trying to get him a retrial in New York. But, you know, these this these trials happened like 10 years ago. And now what he's doing, like you saw that YouTube video, he's mm. just sitting in a prison in the U.S. And apparently what he does with his time is works on um, quote unquote inventions. Uh, apparently he's invented um, – I don't know if, if he actually manufactured any of these, but apparently he's invented some kind of underwear that always stay dry. Um, <laughs> it is said that he still is um, resistant to believing that um, he's ill. And I've really? seen, yeah, and I've seen his brother quote it saying, you know, people criticize Glenn for not showing remorse, but um, in Glenn's case, or in Glenn's situation, in a lot of ways, he still believed that he still believes, you know, what what he set out to do was was real. So it doesn't That's seem he's better. If, yeah, if he is um, truly in rehabilitation, then I'm sure he he would have had some insight into what 
he had done. It, mm-hmm. That's really weird. There's so many anomalies with this case. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 really bizarre and it's really sad. And like, I just think when someone has like, not all schizophrenics will take this route, of course. So I don't want to make it sound like someone gets schizophrenia and they're a danger. But when someone has a a mental illness like schizophrenia. It, it seems like there's nothing you can do to help them or stop them until they do something like this that's horrible. And even then, they don't really get help because if he's in general population in a prison, yeah, he may be mandated to take his medicine at a certain amount of time. But a lot of the programs and stuff in a prison that the public thinks people are forced to do, it's all voluntary. Like you yeah. can go to prison and you can go through these courses of anger management and all this stuff. But it's all voluntary. The only reason a lot of people do it is because it looks good come parole time. Parole, yep. (laughs) What you could do instead is you could just sit in your cell and think you're inventing things and watch TV for 25 years while you serve your sentence. Not to say that's what Glenn's doing, but his family has spoken publicly and made it sound like maybe he isn't getting, you know, the treatment he should be getting in an American prison. And that doesn't seem right. No. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, though. Like, mm-hmm. American prisons aren't really set up for that type of thing. It's all about punishment and retribution and not so much rehabilitation, which mm-hmm. is more what the Canadian system focuses on. And obviously, there are issues with that system. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's said that it's easier for people to seek treatment after they've committed a crime than before because it is hard to find a psychiatrist. I've heard that there is waiting periods in Canada of like months and months to find a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a serious mental illness and you need to see a psychiatrist, and I don't mean a psychologist because those guys cannot prescribe medication, then you're waiting months and months and months. And in that time, you could commit a crime. And it's only after that that you'll receive the the help that you need. Like there's a mental health crisis. It's, it's, uh-huh. it's disappointing, you know? It absolutely is. And then I also think about all the families involved. Like for Glenn, it's like his life is gone. He's, he's not, I wouldn't yep. say he threw away his life, but his illness uh, seemingly took his life away from him. Then you think of his family who's a you know, regular family. It's We were talking about our kids having eczema. Um, yeah. This is instead of, you know, you're, we're probably feeling pretty fortunate now that our kids suffer from eczema because <laughs> it's like something like this could happen in the same way we talk about trying to find the right um, creams to prevent our kids' eczema. It's, it's not that hard because we'll go to the pharmacy and maybe see our doctor, try a few different things. It gets under control. But yeah. imagine if what you're trying to treat is your kid going in the bedroom and painting everything white or sleeping with a knife and, you know, enchanting weird things and arguing with invisible people in the backyard. And, you know, you finally get that appointment you've been waiting for. You get home and your son doesn't believe it, doesn't want to take the medicine and starts doing the same things again. Like it's like when you picture that situation playing out, it's just it's horrific. I have um. Yeah. I have an uncle who who has schizophrenia and fortunately nothing like horrific has ever or or dangerous or anything has ever happened to him but he's um 
like our fan, his his close relatives have his whole life advocated for him and tried to get him, you know, a, a good quality of life and get him safe and taken care of. And it's been an uphill battle the whole way. And fortunately, he's you know he has it under control and takes his medicine and manages it properly. But I could see, I could, I can't, I can see how it could happen the other way or to, and turn negative. But I couldn't imagine being in that situation. How hopeless you'd feel. No, it, and yeah, it seems like one of the most hideous of mental illnesses, you know, like there's no cure, there's only treatment and it's described mm-hmm. as like a naturally relapsing illness. So even mm-hmm. if the person does take the medication, after a while, the efficacy of the medication can start to decrease mm-hmm. and they might not necessarily know that they're having a relapse uh, or that they need to get their meds readjusted. It's like a, it's a continuous process. It's not just, Hey, here's your meds. You're good to go for the rest of your life. It's like, I mean, you know what it's like. Like I have, I take medication for anxiety and depression and you know, sometimes you have to increase your dose. Sometimes you have to switch to a different medication. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's not a, an exact science Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's crazy. I, I heard a phrase once um, that mental illness is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Hmm. So it's like you have you have to be proactive in seeking treatment. And yeah. it's just a shame that that even after this happened that he didn't, mm-hmm. you know, that and he he still continues to um, to believe that he did the right thing. Yeah. And then you have you throw the legal situation in New York in there. And I I feel like that was wrong. I think he needs, like, I think he should be in a Canadian prison closer to his family. Yeah. And, and preferably not a prison. Like it's like, I think it's pretty mental health facility. Yeah. Cause, and we need a whole nother, like something that's in between a prison and mental health facility, because I think they're so mixed up anyway, like prisons and mental health facilities are in bed with each other anyway because they have yeah. so many of the same so many of the same issues and so many of the same kind of clientele passing between the two of them i'm sure if if you went through the prison um you would find a lot of people who should be in a mental health hospital um 100% 100% yeah. and 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 it's hard to to prove not criminally responsible it's hard to get that designation so yeah Unless they have like that concrete evidence that a person is in the midst of a full schizophrenic episode, it, mm-hmm. it, it would be a very hard thing to prove. Yeah, it, it would. And I think like I could I could see someone trying to fake it. But in Glenn's case, if you have a history dating back six or seven years prior to the crime, um, yeah, it, it's just – but again, like I always come back to in this case, I always come back to his – planning and methodical nature and i just i can't seem to rectify that in my head but i'm maybe if i knew more about schizophrenia and how someone may act on the delusions or whatever that they that they have um but it's like when this all went down i like it's 13 years ago but i remember it so so clearly because i had gone to stakenstein at the time i had (laughs) citadel hill was right next to where I lived and it's, you know, it's, it's almost like Halifax's version of the CN tower, like almost wherever you are (laughs) downtown, you can see Citadel Hill. It's just like, it's that kind of place, but it's, um, 
this is a really a really dark and sad story and I feel awful for all the families involved the families of the victims and the families of Glenn Race yeah it's for everybody it's um everybody lost someone that they love uh, the races have a kid in American prison who did a series of horrible things then the other families have uh, a loved one who died in the most horrific but also the most just pointless and bizarre yeah. way so it's just it's a tragedy all around um the best place like you you mentioned that the youtube um video that showed an interview with glenn that came from a toronto star article yeah. uh or a toronto star piece that is like the definitive piece about this case it was written by um Amy Dempsey's her name, and the article is called. Uh, I think it's called "Why is Glenn? Ra- Why was Glenn Race found guilty in the United Ameri- States, but, but in not America. in Canada?" Yeah. yeah, yeah. But if you even just search like Glenn Race, this this is probably the first article that will come up. It's really good, and she, I could tell by reading that article and reading the court documents, she managed to capture a lot of um, you know the main points in her story but telling it in like a narrative way so that that article is really good and she also went into the prison and met with Glenn so there's a lot of photos and video from that Um, so her article like if someone's interested in what Glenn's up to now her article goes and goes deep into um, her talks with them in prison which is interesting but again really really sad um one yeah. thing I thought we could we could end with, and I love your your reading voice, uh, so maybe you can do this. Uh, the race family, Glenn's Glenn's parents uh, and brother, they released a statement to the, the, the basically released it through the press. That's um, their official statement. They have, aside from Toronto Star, I don't think they've really talked to anyone else. So this is about all they said. Um, if you have the statement there, would you read it? Yeah. Um, They say, no words can express the tremendous sorrow, the grief and the disbelief that has gripped our family as the terrible events of the parks of the past weeks have unfolded. Events have taken the lives of three men and devastated their families and loved ones. Events for which our son has been charged. For the families of Paul Knott, Trevor Brewster and Darcy Manor, our hearts are filled with unspeakable sorrow and we extend our deepest sympathy and prayers in the loss of your loved ones. As a family, we have lived with and witnessed Glenn's struggle with paranoid schizophrenia for six years. As a father, as a mother, and as a brother, we have tried every available means to help him, to keep him in treatment. Changes in treatment options were put forward in 2005 with the passing of the Involuntary Psychiatric Treatment Act would have provided for community treatment orders, but those changes never came into effect for our family. We have done everything that we can to assist the police with their investigations here, and we will continue to do so. We rely on their updates concerning the status of Glenn's proceedings, and there is nothing more we can add. We, too, have lost a loved one to a terrible illness that can be treated, but for which there are insufficient resources. We ask those who would do so to pray for the families of all who have been affected by these terrible tragedies, for all families coping with the mental illness of a loved one and for Glenn in his anguish. Oh. Yeah, that's um uh, that's rough. It's really rough and like as a, as parents like 
I know you can too, totally imagine like if it's your kid who did those things, you know, like, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. But then in their from their point of view where so much has happened. And like they say in that letter, they've been trying to get him help and they're waiting for these like bills to pass that maybe would have given them the authority to, you know, involuntarily uh, put him in custody or treatment or whatever. Mm. They would have been watching this happen in slow motion. You know, it would have been like, it would have been like that watching like a plane crash in super slow motion. And it's almost like they would have been looking up at it being like, how are we going to, you know, keep that plane from hitting the ground? Like that's slowly coming down over the years. And they probably thought, you know, something bad may someday happen, but they probably never would have expected it to be something like this. But eventually the, they just watched it happen, trying to stop it and couldn't prevent tragedy and here they are having lost a loved one although he's you know he's alive in a prison in the united states well yeah i mean the percentage of not criminally responsible people uh, with the designation who committed a violent crime is is incredibly low like Mm -hmm. people should not think that Others that are going through a paranoid schizophrenic episode are going to to murder people. Um, that that's a, such a low percentage of the number of NCRs in Canada. Mm-hmm. So his parents weren't weren't to know that he would do something violent. Most of the time, it's things like public nuisance and things like that. It's mm-hmm. not um, it's not full violent crimes. I really yeah. feel for his family. Yeah, I think like I think if it was me, I would have been worried about like him hurting himself or suicide or, or like a public nuisance kind of thing. But yeah, but it's um yeah, and there's when when you hear like the NCR defense that it still has, there's a lot of taboo associated with it, and yeah. people all you need to do is go online and find any CBC article about anything to do with the NCR defense and look at the comments and you'll see uh, that taboo or the kind of the ignorance in full display. But as someone who, yeah. like you said, I, I uh, with uh, myself treating like anxiety and depression and having a family member with schizophrenia, I get that it's a, a very complex issue and I don't think the criminal justice system is set up to deal with it. And I don't no. think the you know, the, the mental health system, if there even is one, is, is prepared to deal with much of anything. So, Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, here in Canada, we have, um, you know, we, ha- we have these mental health facilities that, that not criminally responsible designated people are sent to and they're monitored by a review board, but the goal is to rehabilitate them and, and get them back out into the community as soon as possible. And a lot of the controversy comes from people like Vincent Lee, who committed the Greyhound um, bus beheading of Tim McLean. He was released after, I think, eight years and everybody was like, this guy like beheaded a person on a Greyhound bus in front of a whole bunch of other people and this is what he gets eight years and then re-released back into the community with a new name. Mm. Um, And I think there's a lot of issues because people, like I said before, people who are NCR and commit a violent crime are only a tiny percentage of the number of NCRs. 
but they're all kind of treated the same when they're, they're given the same opportunities to be released if their doctors say that they're okay. But after the Brentwood Five massacre committed by Matthew DeGruy, that's the Calgary massacre, um, the families were advocating for a change in legislation which um, said that once they're released into the community, they have to be continuously monitored when they get their full discharge. Whereas normally when they get a full discharge, that's it, they're gone. And you don't know if they're taking their medication or if the medication is still working. Um, so that that's where a lot of the controversy comes from. And, you know, when I covered that case, I, I said the same thing, you know, there, there should be checks and balances because um, as it happened, um, Matthew DeGroote's medication stopped being as efficient and he was not aware that his mental health was deteriorating. So if he's released into the community and that happens, his medication just stops working. So he's been diligently taking it, but if it just stops working as mm. effectively and he doesn't know, then the public could be at risk. So even though, you know, they are a tiny percentage of um, – people of not criminally responsible people who have committed the violent crime. Um, I think that there really does need to be those checks and balances when they're released. Yeah, so, absolutely. Just, yeah. Just like um, if you uh, have – take like there's people who have kind of – illnesses where they like faint or something i like i can't yeah narcolepsy and stuff that, yeah it's like they may take your driver's license away or add different restrictions or something um so not to say that these people who have like schizophrenia schizophrenic episodes that end this way should be like you know kept in a padded cell for eternity or something but yeah God, i agree no. there needs there needs to be checks and balances to keep everyone safe when they do get freedom and in when i think of glenn's story it would be in halifax anyway it would be very um it'd be a very big public interest story if he was ever released because people were affected by this crime but at the same time it's yeah if he was my family member I, i'm sure i'd be thinking about it a completely different way absolutely it's hard, it's hard to think about a story like this from all angles as an outsider it's it easy. Is. It's easy to see him as a monster and be like, "This guy was crazy," you know, thought he was killing demons. And but at the same time, it's like if this is your your brother or your cousin or your neighbor, yeah, I don't know. It's it's really hard to look at it um, and see it from both sides, which I try to do. And when I do that from this case, in this case, I just end up feeling bad for everybody. Absolutely. And that that's the way it should be. I think public opinion is is so polarizing. You know, there's a bunch of people on one side, side who say like, lock him up and throw out the key the way that they used to do it in, in the old days. Mm -hmm. But then there's people on the other side who are like, well, if the doctors have said he, he's okay to be released, then just release him. But it's like, you know, there is a middle ground. Like, they can be released, but they still need to be monitored. You know, mm. they need to have their check-ins and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a very, very contentious issue. Mm -hmm. So we'll wrap it. We'll start wrapping it up. But before we do, Christy, what's next on Canadian True Crime? Um, so I have a story coming up um, that I'm working on from Saskatoon. Mm. And it's a very well-known story of the Saskatoon freezing deaths. Um, which is 
um, a bunch of indigenous men who were picked up and driven outside of town um, in the freezing cold and left in the snow and several of them um, passed away and they did not know what happened until one of them lived to tell the tale and that wow. kind of blew the whole thing open. So it's uh, it's it's an explosive story and Pete, People do know of it, but maybe they don't know exactly what went on and all of the the details. So it's really important to me to to make sure that I set aside time to cover cases like this where there's a minority group and and the police are at fault and just to really examine what happened and you know, what the aftermath has been and what the community response was and, and all those types of things. So, yeah, it's one of those cases coming up. Hopefully so. you never have to cover anything that's going on in the fish the, the fisheries oh. dispute in Nova Scotia. You see, you see that in the news in Ontario, I assume? Yeah, I have. It it's is a, an horrendous. Yeah, it's absolutely awful. And it's like, uh, it's so embarrassing to have that happening in, in Nova Scotia. I don't know. I didn't want to get into it, but I'm just, I'm so like sick about it. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I guess I follow all the right people on Twitter, so I'm only hearing the outrage. I'm not, I'm not hearing from the fisher people on the other side who think everything is fine. It's very contentious. I want to thank you for joining Christy and I in this journey through Glenn Race's troubling case. I'm sure many listeners will have differing opinions on both his culpability and on how the justice system should be handling these cases. But I think one thing's for certain. There's no easy answer. And one thing we can all agree on is that something has to be done to prevent situations like this from occurring. And with that, we'll end this episode but before we part, I'm going to end with thanks. First of all, a massive thank you to Christy Lee for joining me on this episode. If you haven't heard her show, Canadian True Crime, you should check it out as soon as possible. And then, of course, a huge thank you to all the listeners of Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, Nighttime simply wouldn't be able to carry on. But the battle to keep the show going is still raging on, and I hope a lot of you can have my back on this. If you want to help keep the show rolling, please subscribe to the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you're going to hear in the free feed. You can subscribe to the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And now since I brought up the premium feed, I'm going to welcome the newest subscribers. Adam, Amy, Keegan, Angela, Max, Stephen, Kelly, Leanne, Janet, Greg, and Steve. Thank you all for your generous support. And for anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can help Canada stay weird by simply sharing the episodes on social media. And if you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. You can also find me on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me with the handle nighttimepod. Now until next time, take care of each other. Hug your loved ones tight and advocate for families seeking better mental health resources in Canada.
The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.